But turn to the scriptures of the New Testament in the book of Acts, chapter 15, reading verses 19 through 35, Acts 15, verses 19 through 35, the concluding portion of the account of the Jerusalem Council. From verse 19, it is my judgment says James, the president of the council, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. The men were sent off, the men who were sent off went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for this portion also of his own word. Now, as many of you are aware, for two Sunday mornings we have been together in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts, a chapter that makes a very surprising break in many ways between the end of the first great missionary journey of the Apostle Paul and his companion Barnabas and the start of the second missionary journey at the very end of the 15th chapter of the book of Acts. 
And on those two Sunday mornings, we saw as we explored the central chapter of the book of Acts, central not only in terms of the layout of the book of Acts, but central theologically and biblically as well. We saw the dissension that had arisen in the early church and the debate which then ensued upon that very vital dissension that had broken out. When you recall those Judaizing teachers had come purporting to be from the church in Jerusalem itself and under the authority of James, the president of the council that was soon to be formed, and teaching in Antioch that Gentile believers, that is, non-Jewish believers, needed to be circumcised. Now, you remember that their insistence upon the matter of circumcision was not there simply for some Jewish scruple, but it was insisted upon as the very sine qua non, the very essential for salvation for Gentile converts. So that the message that was being preached in Antioch when these men arrived was virtually Jesus alone is not sufficient for your salvation, but it must be Jesus and circumcision. And this, you remember, led to the calling of the first great general council of the church in Jerusalem. There was but one item upon the council's agenda, What alone is necessary for the salvation of sinners? Now, I trust we have seen on these two Sundays that we have spent time together in this chapter that indeed the issue is not a small one. It is not an issue, moreover, as I reminded you last Sunday, but has gone away and is in the hoary past. But it is an issue that the church must face and deal with again and again and again. Is it Jesus plus my good works? Is it Jesus plus my church membership? Is it Jesus plus my baptism? Or is it salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone? What constitutes the gospel that the scriptures truly teach? And oh, my friends, as we begin this third and final study of this great and central chapter of the book of Acts, I hope that rising up within you is the thought, thank God that the Holy Spirit saw fit to put the 15th of Acts into the record of Holy Scripture. Thank God that we have safeguarded the very truth and integrity and sufficiency of a gospel that is by grace alone and through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God that here is a watershed and a very turning point in the history of the whole Christian church of God. Now this morning I want you to look with me as I say for the final time at the Jerusalem Council, and to look at it in terms of the decree that was passed, the deputation that was sent, and the delivery of its letter. 
Look with me first of all, if you will, in verses 19 through 21, the beginning of the passage that we read a little earlier in our service. Look with me at the subject of the decree. The verses that begin with verse 19, it is my judgment, says James, the president of the council, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. The decree. Now, what may we learn from these verses, beloved? I think we may learn something that is of very great importance and significance for us still today. You remember that the council has sat and has deliberated with great intensity upon the issues that have arisen, the imminent danger that the church is in, the intense Debate that must accompany consideration of that danger has led them to the incisive decision that safeguarded, as we saw last Sunday, both the purity of the faith and the unity of the fellowship. But there are two things this morning that interest us particularly, surely, from these verses 19 through 21. The decree. And the first of these is the way in which the decision was reached, the decree was reached. You see, the whole incident is a remarkable example of unity combined with order in the early church. The church is not a mob. It never was designed to be a mob in the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ when he formed the church upon the earth. And we should carefully note how this decree came about and how it was promulgated. It's a remarkable lesson, you see, in the order and the unity of the church. And without any hesitation, I would say to you this morning, it is a confirmation of our Presbyterian form of government with all due deference here, recognizing there are visitors probably of other church and denominational backgrounds. Look carefully at how this decree came about. At verse 6, It was the apostles and elders who formed the council, you notice. But in verse 12, it was in the presence of a whole assembly that the debate took place. But the whole assembly did not take part in the debate. And in verse 22, there is reference to the apostles and elders and to the whole church. So the constituent parts of that early church council that dealt with this so vital matter was comprised of these elements, the apostles, the elders, the whole assembly. And each had its own particular function, as we see in a moment. The second thing to note about the order of the church is that it was the apostles and elders, verse 6, that is, the officers of the church, who took part in the debate. They alone took the decisions. If I can illustrate it and bring out the point in this way, let me do it. In verse 7, you read, Peter rose up and made evidently a lengthy speech. Now, you might say, surely everything would be settled 
by the fact that Peter rose up, as some sections of the supposed Christian church today would tell us Peter is the very head of the church, as in the Roman Catholic Church, the very first bishop of the church. And you might say, well, everything would surely be settled as Peter rose up, but no. As we have read on, we have seen that the other members of the council did not give any special deference to Peter at all. And after all, it was James who summarized the finding of the council and set it out, and his speech is given far greater prominence and far greater length, you notice, than anything that Peter said. And it was not a decision taken by a majority vote of this council at all. The officers debated, the apostles and the elders. The presiding officer of the council, James, gave the judgment and everybody immediately recognized that God the Holy Spirit had led them to a right decision and a right decree. It was the apostles and elders then who were evidently commissioned by Christ in the early church to settle these profoundly important doctrinal matters and all others affecting the life of God's people, the officers of the church. Now, do you notice, thirdly, that the whole church was invited to consider and concur and support the decision? It's not as though you have a spiritual hierarchy up there as you have with so many hierarchically governed churches today. Sadly, the Episcopalian church, with all its strengths, surely that is one of its weaknesses, and certainly the Roman Catholic church. But the whole church is invited to concur and support the action of its officers as you read in verse 23, verse 22. And then the fourth thing about the order of the church is this, that the decree is then passed on to local congregations. What does that tell you about the early church and its order? That there was a connectional nature to the church. In other words, it is a denial of congregationalism. There is clearly here a government set up by the Lord Jesus in his church, where the officers take the decisions in council together, as we would say today in presbyteries and general assemblies of the church, and then those decisions are passed down to local congregations in a way in which there is a clear directive. This was not good advice that was transmitted. This was the mind of God that was sent forth. It pleased the Holy Spirit, they were later to say, and us, that these things should be required of you, emphasizing the connectional nature of the church. And beloved, I say to you very lovingly, this would appear to be the New Testament method of church government, not hierarchical, not congregational but through godly presbyters and elders, the office of the apostle being unique as we know and unrepeatable. Godly presbyters, charged with the custodianship of God's truth, responsible to Christ for the well-being of the churches in the plural, 
meeting together in a church council where decisions are made not by majority decision but according to the word of God, not on the principles of expediency or the influence of personalities, but on the basis of the directives of the holy word itself. This Beloved, is true biblical church government. This is government jus divinum, by divine right. And wherever it still biblically functions in the church today, we should pray for the same evidences of that remarkable unity and order in our own governmental assemblies. You know, are you ever thankful for the decision of church councils and general assemblies? You ought to be. Because if they are acting in the way this first council acted, look at verse 31. When the decree came down to the local congregation at Antioch, what happened? The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. And when the church is properly and biblically governed, we should be glad for every decision that is reached by our presbyteries and general assemblies and thank God for such assemblies of godly men. And beloved, I confess that I am glad to go to any church council which would settle an issue on the grounds of what the Holy Ghost has done and what the Holy Word has said. And that is what we should be praying for in these days within the PCA for our own church courts and councils alike. But here is the second thing that arises from the decree. You notice the content, the content of the decree. Now there are two things in it. There is liberty for the Gentiles and there is love for the Jews. Look at verse 19. We should not make it difficult, says James, for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Now I need to say very little on this subject this morning because it's simply confirming what we've already seen. But the fundamental principle of the gospel is being soundly and roundly confirmed in this letter in its content. The fundamental principle that the gospel that saves sinners needs no additional or supplemental qualification or condition whatever whether it's circumcision or whether today it's good works or baptism or church membership or being part of a certain denomination in order to be saved. We are saved, says James, by grace alone. And it is a scriptural emphasis upon what we call theologically monergism as opposed to synergism. In other words, that God alone saves his people. He does not save us by cooperating with something that is within ourselves that contributes to our salvation. And our great reformers in the 16th century rediscovered this great biblical emphasis and placarded it again before the nations that we are saved by God's act, monergism. 
Not by God's act plus our act, synergism. And all attempts, says James, to impose any legal obligation on Gentile converts must be resisted and refused with all our strength. Free grace, free salvation in Christ received by faith alone. But you see, the second part of the content of that decree is this. Not only liberty for Gentiles, but love for Jews. Look at verse 20, 21. Instead, he says, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, and so forth. Now, what is happening here? At first, you might say, there's a contradiction. Surely, he's already said we are not saved by anything we do. Now he's emphasizing that we must do certain things. And the answer is, of course, no, there is no contradiction whatsoever. The issue of circumcision was related to salvation as a condition of it. But the issue of these restrictions in verses 20 and 21 is not related to the Gentile salvation at all. It's related to the preserving of the unity of the fellowship. It's not salvation that is in view. It's the fellowship among Christians that is now in view. And it's a quite different issue. And you see, it deals with a very practical problem. Because in most of the early church congregations, there was a mixture of Gentile believers along with Jewish believers. Jewish believers who were brought up in all the ritual customs of the Jewish faith, all the dietary laws, all the laws respecting clothing even, and so forth. And they were sedulously taught to avoid all contact with Gentiles. It was ingrained into their very character. And so what the council is saying is that Gentile believers, in order to preserve and strengthen the faith and the fellowship in these mixed congregations of Jews and Gentiles, are voluntarily asked to abstain from those features of Gentile life that are particularly obnoxious to Jewish believers. Meat offered to idols... Don't bring something, says James, from a Gentile butcher to the Lord's Supper because it will cause division. That food has almost certainly been used in idol worship. Make sure that the meat you eat at your communal feast together has been properly bled because an animal that has been strangled still has much of the blood in it. And above all, avoid your former practices of unchastity as unbelievers. And the gist, you see, is this, as a concession to these ingrained Jewish prejudices and customs, we are asking you to forego what is your Christian liberty in order to preserve the unity of the fellowship. Otherwise, communal meals and communal fellowship will become impossible. And they would have been flung further apart instead of being drawn in 
to the unity they have in Christ unless there was some yielding. Now do you see what they're saying? These prohibitions, beloved, govern Christian conduct. And what I need to say to you this morning is that it's still an ongoing principle, not that we have to abide by these things. They were for a given historical uh, position and situation. Though if we had converts from Orthodox Judaism in this congregation, I would have to say to you, when you invite them to your own homes, be very careful about the food you choose to eat with them lest you cause unnecessary offense. Let your liberty be similarly restricted today. But what it surely tells us is this, as an abiding lesson, that Christian liberty in Christ is not an entitlement to live as we please. God's perfect law of liberty for his church still has some requireds in it and still has some forbiddens in it. And we need to remember that, that some of them may be spiritual and some of them may be ethical and some of them even today in certain instances, as I have said, may be ceremonial. Such was the decree, liberty within the bounds of love, beloved. And oh, how we need that lesson reinforced amongst us in the church today. Liberty for the Gentiles, but in the context of love for the whole fellowship, for the Jews along with the Gentiles. Now, the second thing we need to look at this morning, you notice, is the deputation that was sent in verses 22 to 29. Then the apostles and elders decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch. Now the decisions of the council were carried down to Antioch, we read, by Judas and Silas, specially chosen as emissaries of the council, men of standing, leaders in the church, along with Paul and Barnabas. And there are two things that I want to single out as we look at this deputation. The leaders, first of all, and then secondly, the letter. Look at the leaders in verse 22. Isn't this remarkable? We cannot but marvel at the wisdom of the Jerusalem council, the grace of God that was in evidence there. Why do I say that? Because if this decree had simply been sent down in the form of a letter without personal representation, how cold and distant these requirements might have seemed. But here is personal contact, a personal report, as well as a permanent record being sent. And you see, this was very important because the issue had been profoundly disturbing and upsetting to local congregational life in these churches. Think of the church in Antioch, but it enjoyed table fellowship unrestrictedly between Jewish believers and Gentile believers until the moment when the Judaizers came down from Jerusalem. And then what happened? Division in the midst of them, suspicious looks at one another, 
the very fellowship they had in Christ fractured and sundered into several parts. And if you look at verse 24, the very word in Greek that says they were disturbed, these teachers disturbed you, the Greek anas kenads ontes, literally means an unsettling. And it's a verb that is used for moving one's house and one's possessions to a new place of residence and domicile. And what Luke is emphasizing in verse 24 is that the disturbance was so great, it was as though the mental furniture of the Gentile Christians in Antioch and their Jewish brethren had been turned upside down. And it was as though the ordered comforts of their minds had been suddenly transported and taken away. They are subverting your souls. They are unsettling your minds. And that's why there is such grace and love in sending a personal deputation. Judas and Silas, two who are leaders amongst us, are coming to tell you that in truth, this is our mind as a council. Beloved, what brotherly affection breathes here. The very choice of these men shows there is no begrudging spirit in the council. Men from the very bosom of the council are being sent out as emissaries of this glad news. Would that such brotherly affection were always characteristic of the application of ecclesiastical authority. You see it in the very letter and its wording to the Gentile brothers in Antioch. Verse 22 and 23 it should read. Now the letter, let me pass on that very quickly because we've looked at it already. Why was it sent? Because this issue was so important, we needed not only a personal report, dear friends, we needed a permanent record. We needed it set down that there was repudiation of the initial group of Judaizers who had begun all the trouble and gone out falsely purporting to be with the authority of James. We needed a permanent record commending Paul and Barnabas for their laborers, authorizing the implementation of these loving decrees that would secure the unity of the brotherhood again. And in that letter, as we have seen, the very genius of the gospel was safeguarded. Oh, my friends, would it were always in terms of the authority of the church that the Holy Ghost would preside over those councils. It seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us, they wrote, that these things should be put in place. Well then, thirdly, let me come to the delivery as I close this morning. You notice in verses 30 to 35, there is not only the decree and the deputation that went out from the council, but the delivery of the letter described to us. The men were sent off and went down to Antioch. Again, there are two things as I begin to draw to a conclusion. The exhortation by Judas and by Silas. 
the exposition by Paul and Barnabas. Look at verses 30 to 33 as your Bibles are open before you. They came to Antioch, the assembly of believers, you remember, where the Holy Spirit had first exercised his sovereignty in thrusting forth his messengers to the Gentile nations who had called Paul and Barnabas, set them apart as missionaries to the Gentiles. So it is fittingly to Antioch, but the letter is first sent and read with such gladness of heart. They are the first to hear the good news concerning the triumph of grace. And can you imagine the gathering of that congregation as they learn that from the very place where this heresy began, Jerusalem, from that very place comes the good news of the settling of this issue and the triumph of the grace of God. And Judas and Silas instruct and strengthen them in how the decree is to be understood. And oh, what great relief it brought to those believers in Antioch. You could almost sit in the assembly and feel the wave of relief passing over the auditory. And there is great rejoicing. And they are glad for the encouraging message. But their faith has not been in vain, nor their souls put in jeopardy by the gospel to which they have been committed. The controversy is stilled. The church has peace again. There is exhortation. But do you notice also there is exposition in verse 35. Paul and Barnabas, or Paul and Silas, remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. What a fitting end to this watershed chapter. Bondage, you remember, had been the issue. And Paul had opposed it forcefully and with great strength. Peace is now restored in the church. And where does this leave the church in Antioch? Well, the very same place that we saw it before at the end of chapter 14. A church gathered round the word of God. Paul, with Silas, taught and preached the word of the Lord. And scripture, you see, here confirms the large and active ministry of the word of God that characterized the early church. We can imagine some of the themes as they rejoiced in the Jerusalem decree and expounded its implications to God's waiting people. But it exalted God and set his son in the place of preeminence, not circumcision or ritual, that it bound the hearts of God's people to the true grace of God in their lives. But it provided true assurance of their salvation. That it produced perseverance in their running of the race of life. We can imagine them 
applying and expounding some of these great themes that would have arisen from the council's decision as they ended by exhorting them to live on the grace of God. And so you see, as I finish, should we not thank God for this decree, for this deputation, for this delivery of the letter that in time past there was one church council, truly ecumenical in the biblical sense, that knew the guidance of the Holy Spirit in settling a profound and important issue, that the glorious charter of Gentile liberty was safeguarded once and for all, And that precious doctrine of the grace of God is therefore ours today. My friend, do you thank God for that counsel? Do you find this morning, as you've listened to this exposition, a thankful heart within you? For it was Thomas Boston years ago who said that a gospel of grace, rightly perceived, produces a life of gratitude. Is that your experience this morning? Are you living on the grace of God? Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this passage here today and for the work of those faithful men, apostles and elders and the concurrence of the early church Oh, help us to maintain that flag of truth, that necessary doctrine, that uniqueness of the Christian faith, and make us, like those godly men, true contenders for grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone. And all glory be indeed to God. Amen.